0: Well, welcome to this episode of the Hardman Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Kahn, and I am joined by Dan Burkholder and Brian Silvey. Now, gentlemen, we have a very special trip. This is a special episode because we're on a special trip. That's right. We're driving in the tranny
1: down the highway. That's right. 80 and, miles an hour.
0: And for those people who don't know, a tranny is the appropriate word for what are we in, Dan? A transit? Transit. Ford Transit. We're rolling in the passenger
2: tranny. van. By the way, if you hear heavy breathing, don't worry. Everybody's <laughs> fine. That's just Brian.
1: <laughs> just hey, Brian. Hey, 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 He dropped his chapstick, and, and he's heavy breathing. I had to bend that, over. You, to have, to be over. you have to picture this, fellas. We're, we're in the tranny. We're wearing the trucker headset with the gamer mic. We look like a bunch of bo- bros playing Halo. And uh, there's no get, like, when you're recording normally, you move, you, you move the mic away from your mouth to cover your fat, self-heavy breathing. But the mic is in your face all the time.
0: That's right. So, Dan Burkholder, you're a Midwesterner. We're going to the Midwest. Sort of. The middle of the West. The middle of the the Midwest. Midwest. Yeah. What are we doing? We're
2: going to Nebraska to pick up a whole bunch of beef. I mean, more beef than we should really be carrying in this transit (laughs) van.
1: Hey, Dan, tell them about, uh, you know. Yeah, we had a... (laughs) We well, have a okay, so, Here's the
2: thing. Here's the thing. Uh, so, yeah, I'm planning out this trip. It, it all started with our good friend, Quinn Bible, Salt and Strings Butchery in Southern Illinois somewhere. I mean, God's country. Southern Illinois, not Northern Illinois. Cook it's not County, Chicago. It's not so Chicago. Ill, yeah, no. not not Chicago. So, we had talked to Eric. Eric was going to buy a a beef, a whole cow, and uh, a pig. And I was like, well, I kind of want that. And then we talked to Brian, and Brian wanted one. And then... My brother wanted to buy one. And so now we have a logistics issue of getting a vehicle that can hold four cows and three pigs, like four whole cows and three whole pigs on
1: the hoof. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Live, live cows. Okay. All right.
2: All right. So maybe not whole, but all of the meat anyway. And so in looking at my options, I thought a van would probably be one of the best options. That wasn't crazy expensive. Well, in getting a 15-passenger van, I thought I'd just empty out the back seats, and then we'd have tons of cargo space. Surprise, surprise. We get a special airport model. You can't take the seats out. doesn't have a luggage rack. So, we're just going to fill- Seats don't even fold. The, no, no. 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 We're, so, Mixed. the plan is, at this point, I think, is that we're just going to empty the meat out of boxes and just dump it in the van, <laughs> and we'll just fill it floor-to-ceiling with frozen beef and pork.
0: It's a beautiful idea, Dan.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's- a terrible idea, <laughs> but, we but did we're it. committed. Tell, we, tell, we are committed.
1: What, what, did, what, did, uh, what did one of our team members who should not be named text you when you let us know that this van did not have removable seats?
2: That it was a gross oversight. Quite
1: the oversight. <laughs>
2: Quite the oversight. Oh, we're talking yeah. about Brian now. Oh, yeah. well, hang on. Wait a second.
1: <laughs> no. Oh, just, sorry. So I, just, the- I threw Dan immediately under the van. Under the train <laughs> We just rolled right over him. Dan was run like, over
2: by the train. Literally has done no work on <laughs> this <done> trip.
1: <laughs> I just showed up. And blames me. Way to go, Dan. Well, you
2: know what? It is my responsibility. And you know, a hard man takes responsibility wherever he sees it. So, That's Eric, right. what are we going to be talking about today? Yeah, we're going to talk
0: about, Dan, we're going to talk about how to be hated. And, you know, I thought, because we've all had our share of stirring up the hate. You know, Brian for example. It's been known to happen. Brian on Twitter. There's a lot of hate on Twitter, but I think even pastorally, we've all kind of been through it. Um, So what I want to talk about today is start to look at, you know, what does that mean biblically? Because biblically, we actually have a lot of things when you start to look at it that are like tools for how to be hated.
1: Yeah. Uh, Jesus, Brian, I think said something about being hated. You know, he did. In fact, I remember preaching through that passage and, and thinking, kind of concluding that it's, it should actually be a problem if we look back over the last year or five years or 10 years or even like our whole Christian life and can't identify even one time when someone has cussed us out yeah, for the sake of Christ. I don't mean like, you know. What you didn't check if the seats came out? You, beep, beep, you know, not like that, <laughs> You're right? No, but like, uh,
2: boy, I tell you, I tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to be hated by your enemies, but to be hated by your friends <laughs> and you your know. master. No, oh good. man, no good. who needs enemies
0: when you got friends like this? That's right. One of the key emphasis of the Hard Men podcast is helping men rebuild their households, which in turn will help men rebuild Christendom. One of the key ways that I've found to do this is through family worship, which is an integral part of education within the home. A great new resource from Reformation Heritage Books is the Family Worship Bible Guide, which is definitely recommended. This is meant to go hand-in-hand with your Bible. The Family Worship Bible presents rich devotional thoughts on 1,189 chapters in the Bible including searching questions to help promote conversation and help you as a father lead in family worship in the home. This is a great resource from Reformation Heritage Books, and you can pick up your copy at heritagebooks.org. Again, that's heritagebooks.org. Great resource. You can get the hardcover for just $18, so I definitely encourage you to check that out. It has four editors for this book, including Dr. Joel Beakey, who has done a phenomenal job putting this together. would definitely encourage you to check it out if you're a father. Again, to help lead with family worship, this is a fantastic resource from Reformation Heritage Books. Brian, I want to ask you the first question, um, and that's to distinguish, how do you know if you're being hated in the right way?
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's very important that you, particularly if you're the kind of guy who talks a lot or you have any kind of public ministry or um, you want to disciple others, teach others, that you develop some pretty clear standards of how it is that you're going to evaluate or uh, uh, post, you know, like how are you going to decide what words to say, what issues to speak to? uh, Are you going to put thought into things so that you know that if somebody questions you and says, hey, I hate that you said this you should be able to point to a verse or a good and necessary consequence of a verse and say, well, it's true, and not only is it true, it's timely, and not only is it timely, but I spoke this truth in a way that was appropriate to the the nature of the truth being shared. So it's like, I think a lot of guys might actually say, oh, yeah, I'm hated for the Lord all the time, and it's like, well, no, you're just annoying, or you're just abrasive. So I do think it's very important. What do you guys think about that? I think like, how do you, how do you develop those standards? I think having other people in your life is involved in this, but what, what do you think on that?
2: Yeah, I think that you're right. You have to make sure that you have a foundation of truth, but you know, we're all fallible in our minds and in
1: our motivations
2: and things like that. And, and it's important to have other men that you trust, uh, their opinions offer feedback. So every once in a while, like Brian, before he says something particularly spicy, he'll say, Hey Dan, what do you think about this? And I think part of it is, well, part of it is like, I want to get a rise out of Dan, but the, I think the other part is definitely, you know, having somebody else's eyes on what you're, what you're saying to make sure that you're actually not veering off into error or in Mm. one ditch or another, you know, because you can overemphasize certain points of life where the scriptures definitely don't seem to speak. Um, I'm not talking like whispering about sexual sin, you know something like that, but <laughs> the example. reverse is true you know where scriptures are more silent on certain issues and people magnify like certain food issues to like this is a measure of orthodoxy right right and, and the, the scriptures do speak to food and about the principles around food and diet and and but it's easy to overemphasize those things. so I think it's, it's important mm-hmm. to have people that you trust to give yeah. you feedback.
1: You remember Dan when uh, there was a guy that in the church who was like put out a YouTube video. This guy's not in our church anymore. It didn't end well, and you'll see why after I say the thing. But he was like, "Husbands, if you use dish detergent, you're in sin. Oh wow, didn't repent. Yeah." And it was like a health thing, all the chemicals. And he might have had a point, practically about like thinking about what's 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 in your home with but but like when you open with brothers if you use dish detergent you're in unrepentant
2: sin. yeah you actually it, the way it was messaged was you hate your family oh
1: yeah you hate your family yeah you it's feed yours. them
2: mcdonald's which isn't even food it's not
1: even food
2: you know
0: yeah i was thinking that dan something that you've said frequently but it's having the high ground yeah so being sure that what you're saying is number one true I think this also requires some historical understanding of orthodoxy. Like you would want to make sure on an issue like that. Okay. How long has is this issue been around? Did it come up five minutes ago? Yeah. And if it did, this may not be the, the hill to die on. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that I think is really helpful. The other is having a really clear understanding about what is wisdom, what is sin, and what is conscience.
1: Yeah, that's good.
0: So for for example, if a, a wisdom issue, okay, I can say to somebody, I think it would be wise for you to do this. And, I, and Brian, I, I'll get your take on this when we're talking about wisdom, conscience, and sin. Yeah. I feel like pastoring has made me really more careful on these issues because you realize like I'm in the pulpit. Yeah. I'm speaking the words of God. And can I legitimately say that to do this is a sin? That's right. Right. So can I do I have scriptural warrant to say using dish detergent is sin? <laughs> I
1: think it's
0: pretty clear that the answer to that is no.
1: No. The answer is going to be a, a a big no on that one. Yeah, that, that's so key. And y- you really need to be able to have these kind of heuristics and, and triage that you can do when, when you're approaching an issue. And, and before you start spouting off and publicly teaching on it, which, guys, even if you're just posting on Twitter and, and telling You know, the world, you should do this. You shouldn't do this. That's teaching. You're going to be responsible for those words. You're going to give an account for every word that comes out of your mouth. The scriptures are clear on this. So when you do that kind of thing, you need to pause first and run it through some kind of simple, helpful filter like, okay, wisdom, conscience, sin. An example that comes to mind in our experience where we've had controversy even is in, um, you know, after a lot of thought, this wasn't a quick thing, a lot of thought, a lot of reading, studying, conversation. My conclusion pastorally was, okay, most circumstances, most of the time, sending your kids to public school, the government schools in America right now, I think is probably sinful.
0: And, and you have clear, like Ephesians 6, yeah, Deuteronomy 6, there's clear commands that we think is, are being violated.
1: Exactly. I, You know, so that was the, that was the question. We talked about this on the elder team a lot. Is it sin? Is it just a conscience issue? Is it just a wisdom issue? And we concluded that at least in our, in our time, given the state of government schools and, you know, these clear historical precedents, good and necessary consequence of the commands of scripture, that we could defend that position from, from the pulpit, from scripture. Now, some people are going to disagree and they might say, I would put that in a wisdom. I would agree that you shouldn't but I'm going to put it in a wisdom and a con- or a conscience category. And even there, I think it's important that we have humility to be able to hear a brother who might agree on the, th- on the question of what to do, but put it in a different category and still be able to have a productive dialogue without, you know, in- immediately anathematizing someone with different sensibilities.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's really good. Brian, I, I like your illustration talking about having uh, mastery over a, a subject to more, specifically speak to it, especially in our cultural moment. And it kind of reminds me, if you're going to say things that are going to result in you being hated, you know, having the high ground, that's a, that's a principle of war you want to have in a battle. You want to have the high ground, meaning like you have a defensible position. Yeah. Like you can fall back on, uh, like Eric, you said, looking at church history, it's always kind of a slam dunk when someone's like, I actually hate what you said. You're like, Oh, do you hate what Calvin said? Cause he said the same thing. You know, that's yeah. usually like a pretty solid, uh, you have solid footing, but if you approach these arguments, Twitter, uh, teaching ministries in a lot of way, like a series of sm- small, skirmishes in a battle, what are you going to do when you prepare for battle? Well, you need to train. And so you need to be able to be proficient with your weapons yeah. of warfare. You need to know the tactics of the enemy. You need to know effective <clears throat> battle strategy, you know, and so having a, uh, a, a somewhat comprehensive knowledge of the subject you're speaking to is obviously very important. And then also having, you know, an outlay of the landscape, knowing the cultural moment, knowing the battleground and taking the high ground, you know, having scripture, having uh, orthodoxy at your back, you know, all of those things are really helpful. Not to say that you have to have a PhD or you should even trust PhDs, but not to say that you should wait until, you know, you're 70 years old and you've had mastery over all these, you're just going to have, you have to fight. Like yeah. you have to fight where you are, but you, you don't want to go into battle with the wrong weapon. <laughs>
1: Some half cocked idea that you've thought about for a total of eight seconds. Right. Since you read your first instinct. a
2: book on once maybe well, that the, you didn't really understand.
0: Yeah. It's a really good point. And this is actually one of the things that, that I had uh, been thinking about for this episode was, you know, we, we've experienced this a lot with people in the church, but if you, if you're a young man, especially, or a young woman. And you, so you're lacking in general life experience and wisdom. You should be aware of your situation. But also, if your belief is new or your conviction on an issue is new, you probably want to hold off and not put yourself forward as sort of an absolutist teaching position. Yeah. So we say that, you know, young people should not be elders or teachers in the church because there really is a season in your life where you should be, you should be listening. Yeah. Yeah. And where I see this most is sort of the uh, oh, it's the people on social media. They, you know, they got convicted about a food issue or uh, even a, a tire. You know, you see these in women's accounts with like, oh, I'm all of a sudden convicted on what modesty is, and and they're putting themselves forward as an authoritative teacher. Yeah. And generally, what you find in these accounts is like you can scroll back like six months prior, and they're like. You know, dressing in bathing suits and putting that on bikini posts, social media. Yeah, bikini posting. So, but I also think, you know, realize what you're doing when you go on Twitter and you're speaking authoritatively. Now, it's not to say that I don't think young people should be on social media, right? But I think you want to be conscientious about the fact, am I I putting myself in a teaching role?
2: Yeah. Hey, Brian, what is, uh, what does Paul instruct Titus in Titus 2 that older men should train younger men? to be self-controlled. Yep. And do you, do you recall what the rest of the verse says? I, I don't.
1: Yeah. In Titus two. And in the broader context of Titus two is a very important chapter that you should, we should all be very familiar with because it, Paul, Paul's getting like I'm a household. Not code. remembering no, it. no, you were
2: remembering.
1: <laughs> Way to go. Dave. Yeah. I actually pulled it up so that I could be accurate about it too here. But he, he tells um, young, he tells Titus what to do. Titus. Be you know, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. There's like, I'm aiming for that so that when I get to it be an older man, I would be known as a sober-minded, dignified man. Older women to be reverent, not slanderers or drunkards. Teach what is good. Train the young women to love their husbands and children. And then he tells the men, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That is literally to young men. The only instruction that Paul gives, which I think is just absolutely massive to understanding uh, the nature of young men and the ditches that we tend to fall in, is this ditch of not having self-mastery. Where, you know, think about all of the errors common to young men, things like rampant sexual sin, that is an issue of self-mastery and self-control. Anger, fits of rage, that's an issue of self-mastery. Um, speaking in pride and arrogance, like we're talking about, where you don't really know what you're talking about, that's an issue of self-control and self-mastery. Know when to just not spout the first thing that comes to mind. Like the fact that Paul gives all these instructions to these other categories and he's like, young man, if you do this one thing, you'll be good.
0: Just, just be self-controlled. self-controlled. Yeah.
1: And that would certainly include
0: speech. Um, it would include Absolutely. the way they use social media. Super important in our day. Um, the other thing is, it's interesting in the New Testament when these instructions are given to, to young men particularly, when you look up a lot of the Greek words associated, um, it, it, it means something like well-balanced, mm. right? So, the people given to false teaching are unbalanced men. yeah. And so, really, we want to cultivate this balance. And part of that balance is saying, do I need to anathematize somebody over a food preference that I picked up five minutes ago? Yeah. Well, No. You know, that that shows a lack of of balance. Uh, the other thing that uh, we've been talking about, and I think it's pertinent here, is having editorial channels. So this goes back to my journalism training. Like we don't publish anything unless multiple sets of eyes have seen it. And so I yeah. think we, we we're talking about this. We kind of all have it's not like a codified thing that we do. But we're we're following each other's Twitter accounts. Yeah. Um, I've said some things, and Dana said, "Yeah, you might want to rethink that. <laughs>
1: probably back back a little bit. Probably, probably over the top. So maybe, maybe dish detergent isn't doesn't make you a sinner." Yeah, that maybe. wasn't Derek, Actually, I'm just that, kidding. That wasn't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. I might have said that in in younger days. <laughs> um, I also want to ask a question about pastors now, because I've heard I've seen some guys in sort of the Manosphere red pill yet still Christian camp. And they're like, you know what? Tim Keller's proof that pastors should never be on social media. <laughs> so do you think
1: that is going to the opposite extreme? Yeah, I think you, uh, you, you fall into the other ditch there. It's like, you know, just looking at somebody doing something poorly doesn't mean nobody should do that thing. Right. It's like just, just because you could watch me try to play baseball and you'd be like, wow, that guy does not know how to swing the bat. You shouldn't therefore conclude that like, Sammy, Sammy Sosa doesn't exist. Yeah. Right. And to me, I think not only is that just falling in a ditch, I think it's actually completely discouraging one of the key areas where pastors ought to be leading the charge. Qualified men who are self controlled, dignified, you know, have sound doctrine, sound in the faith, know how to apply the text to situations of life. They should be the ones in the congregation who are demonstrating and teaching through example. Well, this is how you engage in social media. Like, honestly, if Paul were alive today, the idea that Paul would not be leveraging one of the greatest communication tools in the history of mankind to share the message and apply the truth of scripture, I think would be, is is kind of a crazy idea.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead.
2: I I was going to say, so in one of my favorite books, Moby Dick, you get this, this scene early on in the book where. The protagonist, who ends up not being the protagonist, anyway, classical literature is really confusing. But Spoiler, the, the, a lot the of main, characters. The main guy, he, he walks into this chapel uh, in this whaling town, and he sees this pulpit. This pastor gets up behind this massive pulpit that is the prow of a ship. And he's explaining this just, it's kind of ludicrous when you think about it, this ridiculous prow of a ship as a pulpit. And then he stops and he says, It, it was fitting that it's the prow of a ship because the preaching breaks the waves of culture and everything follows behind it. And so Mm. the ministry of the pulpit is preaching on Sunday, but it's more than that because what is a pastor? What is a, what is a overseer, a, a Bishop, you know, uh, they are godly men that have, uh, that are qualified for the office as a, as a servant of the Lord. For, for proclaiming truth of God's word, discerning right from wrong, and to not have those people speaking publicly is kind of ridiculous. It's yeah. equally as ridiculous as a pulpit that is the prow of a ship, even though that'd be kind of sweet. So, yeah, let's do that. to me, it, it would be the same thing as saying like, oh, you know what? Back in the day, uh, the, the, uh, the pastors shouldn't publish opinion pieces in the, in the local paper. Like, that doesn't make any sense
0: yeah and we would probably argue right that they should they should argue in the paper in a right and biblical fashion, of course yeah of right. course, and that's probably the rub we have with somebody like Tim Keller but it, it's also interesting from a shepherding perspective Michael Foster said this one time, but whatever your people are sharing on social media that's so cringe, that's kind of revealing it's a window to their soul that that's like what they really believe and one of the problems I think with Having this view that pastors could only speak on Sunday from the pulpit, well, how are you going to address all the issues culturally that are
1: that are being faced? Part of it's like the same instinct that lead. So there's this gospel centrality instinct that that's kind of rampant right now, or it's been very popular, where it's like just preach the gospel, and that means that any application from the text should basically be like this is a sin. Jesus never sinned that way. He's credited his righteousness to you by faith. Therefore you know, even though you suck at this, praise God for his righteousness. And you're like, yeah, amen. Thank the Lord for that. And also go and do likewise and imitate the Lord. So you have this instinct that's rampant in the church to basically cordon off the scriptures from ever making contact with our actual lives. What what better example of that than someone saying, yeah, pastors shouldn't speak on social media about all these issues. Because that That would lower their office. They're just doing like shock. They're just doing social commentary now. It's like, no, the ministry of the word of God applies to every aspect of life.
0: Yeah. And I think Brian, you know, I'd be interested to hear your take on this, but I think the real issue with social media and pastors is the fact it's revealed that how many pastors don't have a robust worldview. Um, They don't have like a theonomic, theonomic uh, way of viewing the law. Like how does the law view, how does it apply in culture? They haven't thought through these issues. And so when they go on social media, it really is kind of ham-fisted. Yeah. But again, I would say that that just means we need to, as pastors, deepen our understanding of how to apply all of scripture to all of life. I want to ask Dan you this question. I was talking to Yuri Brito, pastor in Pensacola, Florida, uh, this morning, actually. And, and this is a plug for the King's Hall because he'll be on an upcoming episode. We're talking about how worship shapes culture you know as Herman Melville said the, the pulpit leads the world I think we would all agree with that but he makes the argument that in that episode that social media really is the agora it is the marketplace of ideas to a large extent today and so that's why we need to be speaking yeah, act 17 style um so Dan do you agree with that what's what's your thoughts on the engagement as that agora yeah I think We've said on other in other
2: places that the uh, the church is is kind of like the headwaters of culture, and if if you go downstream and you, you you look at the water and you're like, wow, this water's terrible, you just have to follow it back upstream, and you get you get to the church and ultimately to the pulpit, and so when you have pastors in the pulpit it, that are starting to preach on, for example, uh, Brian used uh, public education as as an example earlier, well. Uh, Our public education system and ultimately like teachers in Florida, in Yuri Burrito State, uh, throwing a fit about the don't say gay law because they can't talk to kindergartner through third graders about their sexuality. That all started. You look at the headwaters and that came out of the pulpit when you removed children from the congregation and segregated them them off into their own age appropriate, uh, you know, sort of sub sub church. It's, it's a lower class church where you usually don't even have like a, an ordained minister teaching them children's church. And so it's, you can yeah. see a lot of these issues, uh, you, you, know, talking about the marketplace of ideas, having their Genesis from the pulpits.
0: Hmm.
1: So I, I don't know, maybe you guys can think of other issues that are probably a better example, man. Yeah. That's, I, I do think that when you, when you come to social media, and you look at the, like, where is discourse happening? You have to conclude that that's it. I mean, that's like the public square now. There, there's a reason that a guy like Elon Musk buying Twitter was a huge bomb going off across the culture. It, it, it's, it's like it tells you how important these public spaces are in controlling the narrative there. And like, look at how much work goes into um, censoring certain types of speech on public, on social media that would basically contradict the approved narratives right. on, on lots of things. I mean, Pfizer's documents just came out, like what, 80,000 pages of documents. And as people are sifting through it, they're like, wow, this basically shows that the approved narrative about the vaccines for the last you know year, 18 months, have been built upon half-truths and, and, and misinformation. And yet, you couldn't even say most of the, the things that would end up in this report from Pfizer itself on social media one year ago without getting kicked off. Right. Like that tells you that this is not an unimportant little sideshow that's like people posting pictures of their dinner. Right? Like, right. No, social media is not that anymore. Social media is the public square. Social media is social media and like the, the realms around it, I'd say like podcasting and those things are connected in, in my mind, my like uh, taxonomy of, information uh, dissemination, you, you look at that, that world and you say, wow, this is actually much more important now than things like legacy media, you know, cable I, networks. So
2: I misunderstood your question. But as far as social, social media being the marketplace of ideas. Yeah, right. Um, you know, what's interesting because Brian, you said that there's, you know, it's not just people posting their dinners. You know, there is a lot of garbage that you have to sift through, but that is the, the primary way that we're exchanging ideas. Oh, yeah. You just have, it's just like any other marketplace. There's going to be a lot of Chinese crap that you have to sift through yeah. sometimes quite literally Wish. with Chinese com. disinformation, but, but no, seriously, there's, there's a, a, that is the, that, that's where I go to get my information. Yeah. I go to Twitter and if it's being suppressed, how do you know what's true? Yeah.
0: Where do you go? Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. The other thing, and this is shifting gears a little bit, but when I look at it, so there's certain issues where I say. Am I being faithful on social media? And there's certain issues where I look at and say, am I being bold on the right issues? Yeah. Like the, the fiercest part of the fighting in our culture, right? So one of the things that I've noticed is like Tim Keller, how many times are you willing to speak just plainly, boldly, directly about you know, sexuality?
1: Something that would offend the Democrat.
0: Yeah. Something that would offend the de- Democrat. Or like him, you know, is there a tendency, and, and I'm saying this, we, it's a principle we gauge ourselves on. Am I tending to pull punches on things that I know are sacred cows to the left? So I mentioned sexuality. What are some other issues that you would say, hey, this is, this is one you got to make sure you get right?
1: I do think that one of the issues that would be in that same category would be um, with, with respect to the global, globalist um, war machine yeah, and a lot of that related kind of global, I think the global American empire stuff. Should I not be standing with Ukraine? Is that what? <laughs> I think that basically what, what I'm talking about here is that you've got like, uh, and this is a good example of an issue that's not just like, oh, the Democrats are bad. It's an issue where statism is bad. Right. and Statism is rampant in Republicanism and, and Democrats. It's not punching right or punching left actually to say, wow, uh, a lot of our central banking, a lot of our entire, you know, world economic system. Is built to basically be a money printing machine and a power printing machine for a global elite, and they are, you know, they have a, a vested interest in perpetual wars. They have a vested interest in all kinds of things that are actually wicked and evil. And so, you know, I think that's a testing point for sure, along with sexuality and gay stuff and all of that. I would. Do you guys agree with that, or is that is that a is that a, an Alex Jones take?
0: Yeah, no, I I definitely do it, and that is. Actually, one of the things that I've run into is if you're being faithful on some of these issues, you are going to get labeled Alex Jones. Yeah, right. So, so one of them that I've spoken to because it's part of masculinity, uh, it's affecting men everywhere, is like shrinking numbers of, or sh- you know, levels of testosterone. Yeah. We know that through soy and plastics and other things, I mean, you look at the data, it's factual. There's a lot of estrogen entering the system. Yep. Right? The human system. So when you you look at that and you start speaking out on it in ways to combat it, people automatically think you're a loony bin. Oh yeah, type dude, you know. But I think when you're when you're looking at the data, you, it's just an issue you have to address at some point. Um, the other ones, Brian, you've spoken of. What else was in the uh, the Sunday school you did on how to get canceled? So yeah, you had
1: evolution. Yeah, evolution was one that evolutionary, and I would say not just evolution, but evolutionary thinking. Yeah. Which is like a default anti-supernaturalism and, and uh, materialism. materialism in the world. Yeah. So I think it's important that we as Christians are known what, that we would be known for basically not assuming anti-supernaturalist materialism and how we reason. Right. So, for example, Roe v. Wade recently, I tweeted a series of things related to the demonic and spiritual side of this where it's like. We, we basically say, you know, and people are really bad. People are inventors of evil. All that's true. But you, you can't look at what's happening in the level of vitriol that surrounds these women who are so angry that they're not allowed to murder their babies anymore. Right. And like the, the whole culture of just completely altering their mental and emotional and hormonal states with basically what I would call alchemy, like medical alchemy. With hormones and birth control pills and SSRIs for uh, depression, and it's like everybody's highly medicated. You can't look at that and not conclude that there is demonic involvement in that somewhere down the line. So that for sure is one that I would I would say we need to point at a lot. Yeah, what do you think, Dan? About one of the other ones that comes to mind, right? We
0: did some teaching on sphere sovereignty. It seems like teaching on tyranny and proper. Uh, proper exercise of liberty, things like that. Would you put that in this category?
2: Yeah, I know that we had some issues back in 2020 when all the COVID stuff started. We really wanted to make sure that we had all of our I's dotted and our T's crossed and our understanding of sphere sovereignty. And actually, Matt Ruhella's book, The Doctrine of the lesser Magistrates, was really helpful in that. One of the things that people don't like is the idea of interposition. You know, oh, the, yeah. the lesser magistrate interposing in, uh, in between the victim and the tyrant. You know, so this is, a, this is the local sheriff who says, no, I will in fact not enforce your statist mandate on my people that I'm supposed to serve and protect. That's uh, interposition from a lesser magistrate to a greater magistrate. So that's something that people don't like, though, because they like the comfort of this, this uh, authority structure. And I think that we're all geared because of our cultural moment, because of our education, because of a lot of things, low T maybe, I don't know, to just want to obey people in charge, just to get the reward, to, to fly under the radar. Uh, I, I don't know what it is, but people get really upset when you start talking about sphere sovereignty and taking responsibility. That's the other thing is uh, like men and their families. You need to take responsibility in your house. Um, Hey, your kids are, are a mess. You know whose fault that is? It's your fault. People don't like that. No, they don't like that either. It also disrupts the, the, um, the sexual norms within like feminism and, um, you know, invading the masculine space and, um, you know, uh, what is the, what is the, um, not not patriarchy, the not manosphere? egalitarianism, complementarianism. complementarianism. Thank you. The C I'm, word. This is actually harder than I thought <laughs> to drive and talk.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. At the same time, that FedEx truck. FedEx, is.
2: get out of my way! No, I'm you just gotta, kidding. I'm actually gotta, not even
1: mad. If you're going to pass, though, I mean, you got to go a little faster. I need a third lane. Come on. This is the Zoom Zoom lane. Yeah, this is Zoom Zoom. If you're going to pass, you got to go faster than the person on your right. You got to go Zoom Zoom. Guys, we want you to know this. This is a controversial take. This is actually a pass. Pastors
0: should be speaking to staying in the left-hand lane. That's right. Going too slow in the left lane. It's ridiculous. My word. Yeah. So, Dan, you were also talking about interposition and what it reminded me of, something, another plug for the King's Hall. We interviewed uh, Chuck Knox. Yeah. Are those elk? Yes. Yeah, elk. Out wow. in the middle of Wyoming. I love it. Sorry, I get real excited about elk hunting.
1: Yeah, it's every coming. time this is an experience going in this uh tranny down the road with uh with the Wilderness Warrior podcast because another plug. <laughs> anytime we pass an animal, uh, Dan will be like, Oh, there's some goats. Oh, I've kept my mouth shut. we're in Wyoming, I'd be saying there's antelope there's and then Eric will be like, Oh, look, there's some deers. <laughs> there's some deer and be like, Oh, look, there's some elks over there. In a in a Midwest accent, no less. And I'm like, You guys, we know there, there are animals there. It's like that's Look, right. Uh, so, I, I, I'm just, I must not have the, the, uh, alpha hunting gene that you guys low do. Tea. I'm sorry. Anyway, you low know what? Hey, you take that back low now. I'm a take Frenchman. Take back. We impregnated. Definitely most of Europe. solidified. Oh, that's <laughs> oh, <laughs> <okay, laughs> that out. Oh, okay. And, all right.
0: Interposition, interposition Chuck Knox for the elk. Yeah. Interposition for Chuck Knox. We were talking about how one of the prophetic roles, which is fulfilled in the pulpit to some extent, obviously, uh, Interposition, filing lawsuit. So one of the things yeah. you see with like John the Baptist is he's going to Herod and saying, "Hey, you're you're an authority. Yep. But you have you are in in you're under authority too. Yeah. He's filing covenant lawsuit. That's right. You have to obey Christ. Christ is the head of the state. This is often missed. So when you get into that role, people get really really uncomfortable. Um, but let's go down to a more granular level. Dan, you mentioned this when you say to husbands, hey, you don't have a job, you're lazy and you're not providing. I have to be here to remind you of those things. These are, correct me if I'm wrong, in your counseling, you see this, it causes people to hate you.
2: Yeah, it does cause people to hate you a lot. I mean, it is kind of uncomfortable. Well, and this is this instead of interposition, a lesser magistrate going to a greater magistrate, this is proper order. Yes, right. yes, To where uh, a different sphere is failing in their authority. And I have authority as a minister of the gospel in this situation, in this family where a father is failing or a husband is failing to provide. And so you t- I mean, all it takes is reading the scripture. Talk about having the high ground to say um, the, the scriptures say that those who don't work shouldn't eat. Your answer. Or a man who doesn't provide for his family is abandoned the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Your thoughts. And and typically, uh, that makes men really uncomfortable. They they hate you. They hate you. And the 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 types of answers that you get uh to justify sin are varied. Um, but a lot of it ends up being twisted in our day and age to saying like, oh, so you don't think my wife should work, you know, you don't like me being a stay-at-home dad, you know, I think you're just sexist and
0: Yeah. Whatever else. So I want to ask you in the life of the church, because this is the flip side of this. Like we're talking about the being hated part Mm -hmm. that we've got to get comfortable with. So I've had the opportunity to get to know a lot of people in the church. And what's amazing is that the the most thriving, healthy, happy marriages, families, individuals, people, whatever, are people who have been on the other end of that and they actually repented. Yeah. Yeah. So, Brian, talk just a little bit about why that's necessary for a healthy
1: flock that we are having these conversations. Yeah, I'm, um, and th- this is, you know, comes back to I think a lot of the, a lot of the softness of our culture is downstream of softness upstream. This yeah. Is what Dan was talking about with the, the church being the headwaters. So, if you have a culture of the pastorate where there are thousands and thousands of pastors who have actually defined out the possibility of addressing sin in a very direct way with their false understanding of gospel centrality, then they're going to end up being... you know It's it's a pretty convenient position because you don't have to say things that are really uncomfortable. You don't have to actually look at someone and say, look, you're going to lose your kids if you keep sending them to public school. Mom's working outside the home. You're trying to get them... You're trying to let the center of gravity of the historic faith be held with one hour of Sunday school yep. from like an, a non ordained 21 uh, year old guy who's or lady usually who's, who's teaching, who's probably couldn't explain to you the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, if she tried. So it's like downstream from that, you're going to end up with a lot of uh, husbands who don't know how to apply the text in their home. Right. You're going to end up with a lot of parents who don't know how to apply the text to their children who aren't, you know, skilled and able to rightly divide the word and apply it to the moment, their moment in time. And it just cultivates a kind of soft cowardice that is almost guaranteed to be one or two generations away from total apostasy.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and like, when you're, say, the the man who isn't providing for his family, or maybe it's, maybe it's just not leading in his marriage, maybe he does have a job. Well, the problem is, if, if you're not Dealing with disciplining, disciplining the men in the church on those issues. What kind of employees are they going to be? Right. What kind of members of the community are they going to be? No doubt, there's going to be abdication of responsibility there too. Do you, do you agree with that, Dan?
2: Yeah. So it, it does make sense then if this is the natural state of our culture at the moment, where men are have been discouraged for a long time to not lead, and so they're they're rising to the occasion within their families. Yeah. It shouldn't be surprised that we have a statist government. Right. Because they want it. Yeah. Because it allows them to absolve more responsibility. Yeah, someone come and do this for me.
1: Yeah. Daddy, daddy gov, take care of the issue. It, you know, I think on that same point, it's it's worth mentioning that one of the driving factors behind this is like a grow, a fast, big, fast and famous growth mentality in churches where like one of the easiest ways to make a church with more people in it is to set up a culture where you're not preaching people out of the church consistently. And Dan's pointing at some antelope, I think, over there. Yeah. Antelopes? Looks like does. Oh, I got some does Just over there. a here. bunch of does. So you see this, you know, this culture where, oh, you know, everybody, the first question you get at the pastor's conference is, How many people go to your church? And, you know, how have you planted churches this year? And how fast has it grown? How many baptisms have you done? Well, of course you're going to do everything you can to avoid offending people and preaching them out of the church. But what we've noticed at our church particularly is that there's there was a period of time as we began to reform when we really began to in a more historically reformed way apply the text, all of the uses of the law, call people to obedience to the text, and we saw people starting to get preached out of the church where they would say yeah. rather than obey, I'm just going to go to the church down the street that's not going to bother me about leading my home or working or my wife, you know, we, us sending our kids to preschool and public school and basically abdicating. Well, by the
2: way, that was so successful. We had a lo- the local elder team from a different church come by and they're like, we've noticed a lot of people have come from your church, Oh yeah, you know, to our church and we wanted to make sure there was no hard feelings. We're like, they were like, are you okay? Yeah, we're great. You guys might not be though. Just yeah, so you're aware. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the point is that
1: so over up a five to seven year period, what happened is that our church isn't numerically, like we basically turned over a lot of people. New people came. Uh, some people laughed. We were constantly preaching people in and out of the church, having these come to Jesus counseling meetings like, brother, you need to repent or your family is going to end up apostate in a generation or two, okay? And that inevitably is going to result in repentance, provided we're right about the diagnosis, which I think we're careful to be. Or it's going to result in them hating, reviling, and leaving, or just passively leaving. But the result, guys, has been, I think we've all seen this, is that not only in terms of like this, the, the, the gut test of a church, like h- how do we feel about the church right now? Well, our church is like on the same team, pushing the plow, hands to the plow, going hard, but also every measurable metric in our church. Like, are people engaged in giving? Are people engaged in attending are they coming to psalm Sing? are they you know uh, listening to the things that we're telling them to do in their life and it's like yes 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 down the line as the church is pruned just like a fruit tree instead of producing a whole lot of fruit that is not that great quality which is what happens to a tree if you don't prune it you produce less fruit in the near term but the fruit that's produced is real fruit
2: so one of the byproducts though of having You know, that sort of church model and having those people leave is that they just don't go, oh, well, it was a difference of opinion. So tying it into your main subject, these people, uh, not all of them, but most of them hate us. Oh, they actually
1: really don't like us.
2: Like there are people who have left our church years ago that their entire identity on social media is to just follow our teaching uh, or the social media of the pastors and to just rag on it.
0: Passive aggressively.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, you guys actually have entire accounts and websites dedicated to. Yeah, we do several, and it, it, there's even like, a, so I was in a Facebook group. It's not a Utah Facebook group. It's like a random Facebook group that's related to like um, churches recovering good music and you know helping your church move from playing Bel- Bethel and Hillsong and crap crap music to like singing the Psalms and stuff. Hundreds of members from around the country. And someone, one of the members shared one of my Sunday school classes actually from that, how to get canceled series. Nice. And, um, they didn't know I was in the group (laughs) and one of the comments was like from this girl, I'd never heard of her, no idea who she was. She was like, I'm in Utah. Do not share this teaching. This church is dangerous. There is actually, I run an entire group that's a support group (laughs) to help people leave this church and de, you know, decompress from the dangerous teachings and cultishness of this church. And like, guys, we're a, we're a boringly normal, reformed church, basically, in, in the historic scheme of things. Yeah. And, and, and I actually commented on that. I was like, um, okay, this is awkward. Hi, I'm, my name's Brian. i in the church. I said those words. Yeah. Um, <laughs> could you message me more specifically if there's any sin that needs to be repented of in our church? But like, what are you talking about? Yeah. So that's the kind of reaction. This is how soft our culture is. If you merely preach the text, apply it to people's lives and for their sake, say like, hey, because I love you, I'm going to do the hard thing of sitting down with you and not yelly. You're not yelly saying like, brother, uh, can we talk about, you know, this aspect of your life?
0: Yeah, that's the irony in all this. Right, Brian, is that um, what's going to produce a healthy church is also the same thing that's going to get you
1: hated. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: So, yeah. One of the issues it seems like is I've dealt with this in my own ministry Uh, coming here. I get guys who ask me this all the time. Pastorally, okay, we have a church where people have not been disciplined for 20 years of the church's existence. Right. If I do this now, I might get fired. And I was going through some of those questions early on in my ministry as well. And I talked to an older 60-year-old pastor, very seasoned track record, etc. You know, somebody that you would typically trust for advice like this. Yeah. And he told me, he said, Eric, if you're going to be faithful to the Lord, he said, you have your resume in one hand, not that you're saying this to the church, but you have your resume in the one hand and you preach Yeah, and your mindset has to be, if I get fired, I will find a job tomorrow and the Lord will provide. That's right. There's another issue here though, that I think can go even deeper than that solution. And so I want to ask you guys about this. I think one of the best ways that pastors can be faithful in this season and moment in the culture in America is to be bivocational, have a side hustle, be making outside income so that when they say to you, hey, we don't like your message, you say, I don't care. Yeah, you say, that's fine. So unpack that for me in terms of, do you think it's a good idea Why would it be helpful for this pastoral fear
1: issue? Yeah. On the one hand, I think we need to not overcorrect. I do see some of this in the water a little bit where people are like, you know. You have to be vocational, Or like paying ministers is somehow like uh, grifty. No, it's not. Paul said that ministers of the gospel ought to make their living from the gospel. And when he said that he wasn't taking a salary in these churches, he was demonstrating that he had gone above and beyond what was required. And actually was bending over backwards, not to lay a stumbling block in front of people, given their immaturity. In a mature church, it is absolutely healthy for the I'm paid. It's absolutely healthy for a church to pay their people. When Dan came on as a staff pastor early on, he, he, they were reviewing my salary. And, uh, you know, a lot of times pastor salaries are like, we'll pay you $12,000 a year. Um, we would like you to have a large family. We'd like your wife to be home and we'd like you to work 60 hours a week. Um, and, uh, we're also, uh, we will, um, if you drive anything newer than a 20, you know, 2004 Honda Civic, then we will question your, uh, commitment to the Lord.
2: And your benefits package, eternal, eternal, eternal eternal. benefits.
1: I've actually, uh, early on in, in
0: after seminary, when I was, I had applied to a few churches, somebody, I asked about the salary and it was like ridiculous. Yeah. And the guy said, well, you know, our view here is. We'll keep them poor
1: and God will keep them humble. Oh, that's, it's evil. It's just wicked. So Dan was like, I remember he, we had an elders meeting and they were like, Brian, you need to leave. We're going to discuss our salary. And, and I just remember like when I came back in, they were like, uh, we're actually going to uh, pay you. I was, I think I was making like $26,000 a year or something and uh, had several kids. It's a little excessive. It was a little, yeah, I was getting, well, I, yeah, I was in danger of not being kept humble. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. And 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 uh, Dan was basically he was like this is not okay. Like you actually have to pay Brian. But anyway, back to your question. I do think though all of that said that normativity in scripture of ministers being paid, it's modeled on the priest the Levitical priesthood, you know, type any type kind of relationship there, but it is important for pastors I think to do two things. One of those things is to cultivate skills so that they can be a respectable man Yeah, and have, it can help your credibility with the, the other men in the congregation, particularly if they know that you're not just the kind of guy who couldn't like Mark Driscoll used to say, who became a pastor because it was inside work that didn't require heavy lifting. Right. And I also think that to your point, if you can cultivate over time, financial anti-fragility, which requires multiple streams of unrelated income to an extent, uh, you will be in a better position where at least the temptation to capitulation over fear of money will be lessened. Now, even if you have no way of knowing how you're going to pay your bill tomorrow and feed your family, if you're faced with capitulate for money or not, you obey the Lord and you trust the Lord to provide. But it can help,
2: I think. if you look at normative human experience through most of history, the, the pastorate or even being like a Jewish priest or, or something like that, outside of like Old Testament Israel where you were a Lev, you know, in the tribe of Levi, you were going to be that. You, you usually had a trade from your father and then you would go to school in order to be a pastor of some sort. And so you always had some sort of trade to fall back on if that didn't work. And so in our in our day today, I think it is very important as far as like being anti-fragile, you know, where if critics come against you, if you're slandered within your own church, because we have the benefit of having a church that kind of we formed to be like be able to hear some of these hard teachings and have a realistic view of scripture and and what it expects. And if you're trying to reform a church, you know, you get plugged into a different church and they're not, they're not where they should be, and you tell them to repent, and they fire you, you're obviously in a, in a difficult situation. And so, I think it is important to have some sort of side hustle or some so, sort of other trades that you can fall back on, um, just in case that does happen. The last thing you, you want to be accused of is being a coward, of yeah. being a hireling, because you're afraid to preach the truth that the people need to hear, not just like, oh, this was a hot topic in the 1500s. Yeah. No, 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 no. No, today, what is the, what is the <clears throat> thing that your people need to hear today? And if you won't fight where the fighting is the
1: hottest, then you're a coward and well, you are a hireling yeah. and you're afraid. And, and we've seen this, like if pastors need to be encouraged, I think to hear that the results, again, I just want to reiterate the results of this happening in our actual church. This isn't theory. Isn't that we went broke and the church died? It's that our giving is up two or three hundred percent with the same number of people in the seats. Yeah, I okay, th- I'm not exaggerating. That's no. a huge point. Yeah, like we to the point where what was the result of discipline? Yeah, and and this isn't like a, a name it and claim it guaranteed thing that this is going to happen. But to the point where we said, look, we've been saving as a church. We're willing to run in the red for for three to five years to start a school because we think it's what we need to do, and then. Within several months of starting the school, you know you have people in the church that you've never guilted for money, you've never like shaken them down. That come up and say like, "Hey, um, we're well off. We've been we've been doing well. We are so impressed with what with the vision for the school. Here's a check for seventy thousand dollars." Mm. That's happened on more than one occasion, and we don't live in like no.
2: White collar, California, Silicon Valley. You see, the average income so. of
1: our church is not like LA, you know, sort of situation or everybody working in tech and making $300,000 a year. Again, that's not why we do it. But when you, and, and we would hopefully continue doing that, even if it was more financially difficult from moment to moment. But the result so far has been like, wow, we've preached people out of the church, but the people who are in and have been preached in are in.
2: And, and the thing is, is even if you go into the battle where the odds are not in your favor and, you know, we love the stories of the men that go into battle, the odds are stacked against them. They have a righteous cause. They fight with valor and win. That is glorious. But you know what else is, what else is glorious? Is going into a losing battle and not capitulating and fighting hard yeah. and dying in honor.
1: Yeah, being Roland or being, you know, yeah, fighting to the death, knowing that you're giving your life for something worthwhile, and that the Lord is a God of resurrection.
0: Yeah, and I think Churchill pointed this out, uh, but those who, like a culture that was, seemed to be destroyed, but they went down fighting, they had a way of coming out of the ashes like the phoenix, whereas culturally, you look at cultures where they just gave in and surrendered, and they're done. Um, they're just finished. So, I think yeah, that's, that's yeah. an encouragement too. One of the questions I want to ask you guys is, um, there's a lot of men, no doubt, pastors who listen to this. And one of the things I know from personal experience is you have to guard yourself against bitterness when you're in the midst of these situations, right? You have to guard against, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, being so much in the thick of it, constantly being hated that you become the one on Twitter who's just nasty gramming back to people. Right. All the time. So what would you, how would you counsel? How would you exhort people? How do you maintain joy, gratitude,
1: and an even keel? In the midst of the stormy sea of yeah. opposition. You look to examples like um, I love the example of King Loon of Arkenland in The Horse and His Boy, where he says a king laughs more heartily over a scantier meal than anyone in the kingdom. Mm. And he puts on his finest clothes and you know he 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 laughs and rejoices over the meal. And it's like you can't just assume that you actually have to fight for that. Can't be gloomy. No, you have to you have to have a joyful, humble confidence where you're actually demonstrating for your people where you're actually you're telling yourself and your own soul you will not be grumpy you will not be anxious and a, you know a doom and gloom false prophet you will not be you know woe is me nobody loves me get over yourself it's not about you if you're doing it right people won't be hating you for you right they will be hating you for the sake of Christ so get over yourself don't be proud if you're in it for your own glory anyway, quit like you, you do something else. And, and when you do that consistently, what will happen is in the moments when you sinfully or you, you're, you're, you're really gloomy or even you're just having a hard time and you really are like, you need encouragement. You will have trained people around you and your wife or, you know, a guy in the church or a fellow elder will be like, keep your head up, brother. Keep pushing. Yeah. Keep fighting. Like st- stand up shoulders back, keep going. Let's sing a song, you know? And, and that to me is like, when you, when you see that culture come together and it's years of work, but when you start to actually taste the fruit of that culture, there is nothing better. There's nothing better.
0: Yes. Fantastic point. Dan thoughts on that expectation. So, So,
2: so another thing that you should do to protect yourself from bitterness is when you're confronting people, especially as a pastor. Or as a Christian, you're you're coming to somebody and you're telling them to repent, and they refuse. That person is actually headed to destruction, and usually they're projecting on you, like I hate you and everything that you're about, and I don't want to see your face ever again. Yeah, they're projecting on you. They're actually headed for judgment. It, yeah. You know, if you look at the the promises of God, he says in I, I believe it's Deuteronomy six, where he talks about. To those who love me and obey my commandments, I will um, bless them to the thousandth generation. And to those who do not obey my commandments, I will visit iniquity on the third and fourth generation. There is judgment that is being laid up for those people who refuse to repent and they could apostatize themselves and they're cursing their generations. And so one of the things that you have to do is keep in mind and to pray for them.
1: Yeah, that's right. To pray
2: for them because they might be lobbing insults at you. They are to be pitied because right. they're headed to, to destruction.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Um, Dan, it connected to this and everything we're talking about here. One of the things I learned was that I, I cannot bring everything home in terms of grumbling and complaining about these situations. Oh, yes. yeah. yeah. So I've been at points in pastoral ministry where I was so low, like, you know, we're down to one elder and I'm having to discipline the guy and he's leaving the church and dividing. <laughs> oh boy. <And laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Man, I was, I was just dejected and somber. And I talked to another pastor who was giving me counsel, again, another older, wiser man. And he said, well, how's your countenance? How's your demeanor? And I said, well, you know, my wife's at the point where she's like, I don't want to hear it. I, I'm tired of hearing about this situation. Yeah. And I shared that with him. And he said, Eric, what you need to do is you need to go home, find a movie your family loves, order pizza, and I want you to smile. And I want you to be joyful. And you need to project that in your home. And it was, it was a discipline.
2: You're like, here's joy, old man. Yeah. I'm
0: going to let you have it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. And and I did. And it was so like that night I went, I went home. I did what he said. Get sex in the city. Put (laughs) it on. Yeah. (laughs) Sleepless (laughs) in Seattle. Come (laughs) on. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) It was, it was Lord of the Rings. Okay. Praise the Lord. But uh, we watched that. We had a good time as a family. And it was like the whole demeanor, the whole countenance of the family lifted. And so, what, it made me very conscientious of you can't be Johnny Raincloud in your house. You can't be Johnny Raincloud in your relationships, at work, with your peers. Um, you have to find a way to just discipline yourself
1: and cultivate joy, especially when you don't feel like it. Absolutely. And that's so good. You have to be able to, like, I think a good test for if you're ready for ministry too, uh, or if you need to grow in your, in your, um, in your skill in, in ministry is, like, how good are you at being the butt of a joke and laughing? <laughs> yeah, can Brian's, you, Brian's really good at it now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously though, you just have to be like, can you, are you so, cause what it is, is it's pride. If you can't. Yeah. A lot of the time, Don't be precious. Yeah. You, you have to like, do, do you have men in your life that you rib and you know, you joke around with and you, you make fun. Of? Cause honestly, if you can't handle that, then, ministry and, and public, you know, uh, rhetoric. And it's just not for you. Yeah. Your friends are good
2: at finding your soft parts, yeah. right. And poking them mercilessly. That's what good friends are supposed to do, but how much better are your enemies going to be at it once oh. they find your soft underbelly? Cause they don't once love they you. Find, no, they don't love you. Mm-hmm. They do not have your best interests no. in mind. They don't see the soft part as something that needs to be toughened, so they poke at it a lot. They see it as a spot
1: that they can stab you. This is one of the things I love about Pastor Doug Wilson because he's just like so jovial. He, he's one of the most jovial guys you'll ever meet, and, and, and people could be people could be call, you know calling him a pedophile enabling da da, da 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 da, and Homeboy is laughing, he's chuckling, he's writing hilarious articles in response. It, it's like that. That to me is like it is the reformer spirit. That you is not optional if you're going to be a reformer of any kind. Yeah, being joyful. I
0: remember even uh, when a lot of the stuff was in the middle of going down with some of the situations in Moscow. Uh, I remember Doug saying, like Nancy bought him a, a nice bottle of like Lagavulin or something like that, and said, you know, enjoy, drink up. This is going yeah. to be a long road, but yeah. we're going to rejoice. Uh, the other thing I was thinking of is is as a man, so you know, this is not necessarily pastors, but any man facing difficulty. It was something. A post-fight, Connor McGregor, I remember he, he lost a fight and everybody's expecting him to be all down. Yeah. And, you know, he's probably not down because he just made like $200 million. <laughs> that would help. But <laughs> they said, Connor, you know, you just lost a really big fight. It's got to just be a gut punch. How are you going to handle it tonight? And uh, Connor McGregor said, he's he's. I'm going to do what I do after a win. I'm going to go home and I'm going to drink and I'm going to celebrate everything that we've accomplished. And he said, losses are things that teach you something too. Yeah. And I'm going to celebrate the victories of you know what we've learned. You compare and contrast that. A recent article on Ryan Tannehill. They lost a playoff game because they're Tennessee. That's what they do. <laughs> they lost a the playoff game last year. And Ryan said, it took me six weeks of therapy and <laughs> being in my house. And I'm still just now barely getting soft. over it. Yeah. And it was like my son shared it with me and he was like, Dad, isn't that pretty soft? And I was soft. like, Yeah. Oh. I mean, you you want to pray for a guy like that, like toughen up, but yeah, you need people in your corner. I was thinking of my youngest son. He fell down and, uh, you know, he's the youngest in the family. Yeah. He fell down playing basketball, scraped his knee. You know, he was kind of milking it a little bit. Sure. And his brothers immediately were like, well, should we call the Wambulance? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. You got to have brothers. <laughs> and immediately he, he laughed and then was like, yeah, okay. He yeah. picks himself up. You yeah. got to pick yourself yeah. up, you know, refuse self-pity yeah. and, and move on.
1: You know, one of the ways that you, you, get, you get to the point where you can pray for your enemies too, because that's such a good point. Is that you look at that glorious bus that we're passing here,
2: Dan? That wow, looks like Dan, your bus. Yeah, Take well, notes. no, no, my bus is way better, <laughs> way better, than, better than that, that one bus. Yeah. That one has purple on it and white. It, Terrible. Some sort of hack that job. That looks like a no. Hoarder. My bus has uh, shoot. I can't remember the color. It's a cream color though. Primer it, beige. It's International Harvester white. No, Ooh. it's actually a cool color. Eh, okay, it, no, it looks like I a like prison. It. it. Looks like a prison bus, but I,
1: I, in a good way. I like it. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> One of, the, one of the things that I think has been more helpful to me in terms of a mindset shift than anything else relating to enemies or people that want to be your enemies that are really trying to be your enemies, uh, even if they're brothers, like in some of these people, the reality is they're actually brothers. Yeah. They're just in different churches. They're bitter. They're caught in sin. And I want them to repent. I want good for them is to realize that some of your best servants, some of your greatest servants in your life will be your, your biggest enemies mm. because they will teach you more. They don't, they're not trying to, but they will help you cultivate more actual virtue than 100 people who are praising you. Mm. You know, 100 people who are praising you who don't actually know you aren't going to do you nearly as much good as one good enemy. Oh, man. Man, you you need good enemies. And, and and if you're making no enemies, then you should really sit back and question, like, what am I, what am I doing? Yeah, what am I actually doing? It reminds me of something Seneca said Uh, When he said, are you a
0: man who has not seen trial? And he said, then I pity you most of all because you have not had the opportunity to prove the worth of your character. Oh, that's good. And so, yeah, looking at obstacles, trials, difficulties as opportunities for refinement. You know, I, I honestly, the thing that comforted me most was I go to like Hebrews 12 and following. And, you know, it's from Proverbs, but, you know, take heart, son. If you're receiving discipline, your father loves you. That's right. And so being hated is part of that process. Yep. Uh, Jesus said, how much more will
1: they hate you if they've hated me?" So that can also be an encouragement that, hey, I am being faithful here. Yeah. Like who who has soft hands that are good for nothing? The guy who's never chopped a stack of firewood. Like who has, who is soft in his spirit? The guy who's never run up against any like sandpaper personalities and never had to deal with being hated. Yeah. You you know, your enemies, if you're a, a wise man. They will become your greatest servants, and so you thank God for them, and then you're heaping hot coals on their head too, because you're you're like, "Thank you, enemies, you've yeah. helped me so much." Yeah, that's you exa- strengthened my ministry. <laughs> that that's exactly right. They're actually, you know, God's using them to do you a favor. Mm-hmm.
0: Dan, I want to tie this episode with a pretty little bow, pink maybe polka yeah. dots. This,
1: Ooh, this, you're going to the right this one.
2: Other transit van. I am. I know I'm he's done. trolling
1: you. He's trolling you. Are we I don't know racing? how many times they we keep passing pass each other. other. And then- oh man, he gets in front of me and he slows oh, down. Oh, he's from Wisconsin. Do they Dan? know about Go cruise home, head. Do they know about cruise control, do you
0: think? No. No. Have they ever heard of it? No. No, that looked like an English as a second language. So was that band. the pretty <laughs> I was gonna make a jump, but I didn't want to. <laughs> was be that the pretty people is a
2: racist like you. That, that
0: big, was big, actually big. not the pretty pink okay, bow. Okay. What's
2: the what's the bow? So, Dan, I, I want to tie this in.
0: into <laughs> an amazing podcast that we are starting season two, Lord willing, very soon. The Wilderness Warrior Podcast. Yeah. Yes. So, one of the things Dan and I have talked about often is when you go through, you're in the mountains, you'd go on a hunt and it absolutely sucks. <laughs> mm, yeah. Pretty much like every time Dan goes hunting in the Uintas. So, yes. you know, just to tee that up, it like sleeps. Well, no,
2: the first time it was glorious. Well, I was the elk. I got my elk on the ninth
0: day of the hunt. So that okay, was but like last days. year.
2: Last year was horrible. <laughs> yeah. So,
0: but the thing is, those are the experiences as men Well, like we were standing in church and your dad and brother are there and we were, I was just listening to them recount how bad it sucked, but there was like this joy in the conversation. Yes. Like we did it. Yeah. We went through that suck. So just talk didn't to me leave early. No, talk to me a little bit about what it does to you. When you've been hated, you endured, you were faithful. You come through. It becomes right. A, like a proud memory. Yeah. Especially if you
2: did it with some, some semblance of Gracie. I'm passing this guy. Again, this guy driving me nuts. I'm in my, everybody has their own cross to bear. No, I'm just kidding. So, so when you go through a trial like that, sometimes they—I mean, it genuinely is painful. It's not just like some troll on the internet. These are usually people, the ones that hurt. You know them. You know them. They know you. You've known them yep. for years, years and years. They're the Judas, and yeah, you are betrayed, or or some other. They they begin down a road of uh, sin and won't repent. I mean, these. Times are very, very difficult, like sleepless nights. You're chewing on it constantly, almost like a bad tooth Yep. You know, in your head. And the thing is, is on the other side, if you come through it and you don't capitulate and you stand firm on the truth and you lean into the community that's got, that's got, that God has given you, you lean into him, you come through with so much joy because you've been through the trial. Uh, I know that in James it says that counted all blessings when you encounter trials of various kinds, and I think that in part is why because it yeah. does produce that endurance that is needed. Just like in the hunt, you go on this hunt and it's terrible. You don't see animals, you're miserable, like uncomfortable. You don't sleep, but when you get to the end and you didn't quit and you survived, you can look back on that and say, "I I accomplished something that was actually horrible," and the next time it comes you're like, oh yeah, I've seen this before, you know, and you can stand up straight steel spined and in- he's passing me again. <laughs> I just, This guy, won't
0: he do it? Yeah, no, I love yeah. that, Dan, though. It's such a good point. And I, I think ultimately, too, that's where gravitas comes from. Absolutely. So we talk about, you know, Michael Foster and his book, gravitas, and I had a lot of guys ask me, but yeah, what is that really? What it is, is going through a hard season bearing the weight of responsibility and you come out on the other side and you're the warrior who has battle victories under his belt. That's
2: right. Yeah. So when the enemies line up again, you're like, it's like a seasoned boxer. I know what to do. I know what to do. I know my, I know my craft and it doesn't rattle you as much. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, as we are about to pass this guy again, (laughs) this guy, what is going on here? I even went like real fast to try to get ahead of him and he caught up. He's, yeah, they, they yeah. This, this is my internet troll in I think real life. Driving is a second language. Look at this. He's, He's speeding, speeding up, up as I go to pass him. He's speeding up. I should just box him in. I have a box truck. He has a box truck. I Actually, this, it, it, a it couple looks of like his box truck has a few dings. So. It looks like it was on its side at some point. He's it's got like, the short one you know, with the high roof this, this was supposed to be the end of your episode. that We wrapped a pretty bow. So go fight, win, stay frosty. Hardman podcast, Eric out out. Actually, I don't know how you end No, that's beautiful. Oh,
1: okay. Brought to you by Reformation Heritage Books. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Brian. (laughs) Yeah, you got it.
0: This episode is brought to you by Reformation Heritage Books. Brian, if we want to fuel a Reformation, we're going to need a lot of literature and good material, including the Family Worship Bible Study
1: Guide. That's right. You don't want to be the kind of guy, like we've talked about, who's trying to go into the battle. Especially a battle of ideas, who hasn't thought about ideas or listen to other people or been trained. So, yeah, you know, pick yourself up. It's got devotional thoughts on all 1,189 chapters of the Bible. And, uh, you know, get yourself trained in the word of God with some great teachers. Joel Beakey's on there. Reformation Heritage. A lot of reformed treasures there uh, at heritagebooks.org. Does it does it teach you anything about
0: road rage on fellow transit? Yeah, Dan, there? I've got a couple books from here. <laughs> We've
1: books. got a couple books going <laughs> to <today laughs> help you out.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.